You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Uh, I've shared this with you before. Um, I love to snow ski. I haven't gotten to do it in several years. It's been a few. Um, But I skied for 20 plus years of my life. And I will tell you, without question, my favorite place to snow ski is a place called Telluride in Colorado. And not a lot of people that I know have been to Telluride. It's not one of the touristy places like Aspen or Vail. Um, but I love to go there. It's up in northwest Colorado. That's another reason why not a lot of people that I know have gone because it takes longer to get there. But I want to tell you this morning, one of the things that I love more than anything else about Telluride, and it's a place at Telluride that not many people know about. And it's a place called Gold Hill. Now, I actually brought a map with me this morning to show you. This is a trail map from Telluride. So if you've been skiing, you know what a trail map looks like. This shows you where all the runs are on the mountain. And, you know, you've got green easy runs over here and blue easy runs over here. But if you look way up in the top middle of the mountain there, you'll see there's a little red line It's a place called Revelation Lift. And so here's what would happen. Me and my friends or my students, we would get backpacks and we would put our hiking boots or our snow boots in our backpacks. And we would start the day out venturing up the mountain. And you'd have to go up a lift, ski down to another lift, ski down to another lift, and so on, until eventually you got to the bottom of this Revelation Lift and and rode up it. Well, if you were paying attention when you get off of it, Way over on the side of the mountain, there's this little gate. And there's like nothing beside the gate. So, I mean, you could just walk around it if you wanted to, but it's a gate. And it has a little sign by it that says, To Gold Hill. And so we would take off our ski boots and our skis and put our snow boots, hiking boots on, pick all our stuff up, and start hiking. And we would hike all the way up that mountain to where you see that big circle with that little person and the bridge in it. And that was Gold Hill. And we would, when you start to ski down, you get to ski down this big black double diamond bowl, which sounds a lot scarier than it really is. Um, And you'd ski down that for quite some time and it would feed you into the forest, which was amazing. And you would come out of that into another forest, which was amazing. And then you would finally be at the top of what most people would consider the top of the mountain where the run started. And then you'd begin skiing down what all the normal people skied down. And so from top to bottom, yes, it took you about an hour and a half to venture up there. But when you started skiing down, you were skiing for about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. And it was incredible. And so we loved this. Absolutely loved it. And as soon as we get to the bottom, every time we would get to the bottom, we were like evangelists trying to convince other people, you have to go up and experience this. But the biggest thing that I loved about Gold Hill was the view. Because when you would get up to the top of the mountain, you wouldn't just strap your skis back on and head on down. You would sit down and you would look back the other way across the valley. Because on a day like today, when it was clear blue sky, you could see all the way to Utah. It was incredible. 
And so again, we would go down and we would be like, you have to come up and see this and experience this. And we would want everybody else to come up and see it and experience it. And people would be like, no, that takes too long. Or no, that's too scary. I'm not up for that or whatever it is. But you wanted so badly for somebody to see what you had seen. The problem is you can't really it doesn't work that way. The only way to truly understand that view is to go and see it for yourself. You can try and describe what it looks like to stand in Colorado and see all the way to Utah, but it, my descriptions fall short. You want somebody else to see this. So here we are at the end of this letter called Galatians. This letter Understand, this is not like Paul decided he wanted to write a systematic theology paper. This is a love letter. A love letter from a man who loves the people he's writing to. And here's what he's trying to communicate to the Galatians. If you could just see Jesus the way that I do, you would never long for anything or anyone else. Paul is trying to basically hand them the binoculars and say, man, if you guys have got to come and see this. You got, you've got to see this. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to infect them with the vision that he has for their lives. And more importantly, he's trying to infect them with the vision that Jesus has for their lives. But there's a problem with this. It doesn't work that way. We can't sell each other vision. You have to determine to make that your vision. You have to determine to look at and see life that way. We have to own that vision. And so Paul, he's closing out this letter and he gives a final warning and a benediction. And my prayer this morning is that as we read through these last verses of Galatians, that we will see Jesus the way that Paul does, but that we will also see ourselves as Jesus does. And as that happens, that it will change us forever. So let's pray real quick here. Lord, this morning, we just ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, that you would transform our minds and change our hearts, that you would radically and powerfully work in us for your glory. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Look with me in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. It says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So right here, Paul has apparently been dictating this letter the whole time, and someone else has been scribing it and writing it for him. He takes the pen and says, I'm going to finish this thing. Why does he say that he's written large letters? Well, we think that as we know, Paul had probably this issue with his eyes. My guess is the only way Paul could see what he was writing is if he wrote it really, really big. And the Galatians knew this. And so this is Paul's way of affirming and assuring them, this letter is from me. He goes on. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised but only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the whole law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
Paul is reiterating here one final time at the end of this letter, true Christianity, genuine faith is internal. That it's a matter of inward heart change. It's not rooted in or birthed from externally changing our behavior. Now, when we are transformed inwardly, it is inevitably going to change some of the way things look on the outside, the way we look, the way we act. It's going to change external things, but it is not rooted in them. True Christianity is first and foremost an inward transformation. It is internal. Paul is also saying that true Christianity is substantive. It is not superficial. It's not a rearranging of the things on the outside so that it will look like things have been changed on the inside. It works the other way around. And the Judaizers are these people who are trying to force the Galatians to be circumcised. They're trying to say to them, yes, you need to be a Christian, but you also need to be a Jew. Well, what Paul is saying right here is one of the other reasons why they're demanding this of you is they don't want to preach that through the cross of Jesus Christ alone, you can be saved. And here's why. One of the reasons is, is there's a good possibility if they preach that they might be persecuted. So persecution is possible if this happens, if they preach this. But what we also know is that it's going to require humility. It has to be a massive humbling of yourself to preach that. And the Judaizers, whoever these people were, they didn't want anything to do with either one of those two things. They didn't want anything to do with persecution and they didn't want anything to do with humility. Here's what they did want. They wanted a less demanding, less offensive alternative to the gospel. Less offensive, less demanding alternative. And what Paul would call that is superficial Christianity, which he would also say, there is no such thing. It's an oxymoron. It doesn't work that way. So let's bridge this from them to us, from then to now. Let me do that by saying this. There have always been Judaizers and there will always be Judaizers. There's always going to be someone that wants to lure or to lead you and me to live by keeping up appearances. Now, why would they want us to live that way? Well, it's because that's how they've chosen to live. And whether they recognize it or not, they're exhausted and they're miserable. And as we've talked about before in this series, misery loves company. There's always going to be someone who's trying to lure and to lead everyone else to live and play by the rules that they believe that they have to live by. Why are they going to do that? Well, again, because inside of living that way, they're exhausted, they're miserable, and misery loves company. There's always going to be someone that's demanding that we live and think the way that they do. There's always going to be someone who is thinking and living and trying to lead other people to believe that it's Jesus and Jesus plus. And Paul has spent this entire letter trying to say, if you could just see Jesus the way that I do, if you could just see him the way that I do, you would not long for anything or anyone else. 
But here's the thing. To see Jesus as Paul does, for us to see Jesus as Paul does, we have to first see ourselves as Jesus does. Let me repeat that. For us to see Jesus the way that Paul does, we need to see ourselves as Jesus does. We need to understand how Jesus sees and looks at and views our life. You and I need to understand, accept, and embrace that Jesus Christ has a vision for our lives. What does it look like? Well, take a look at John chapter 10 with me. In John chapter 10, Jesus begins telling his disciples that he is the good shepherd and that he knows his sheep. He calls his sheep. His sheep know him. He feeds his sheep and he protects his sheep. Why do his sheep need a protector? Well, because they also have an enemy. I don't know if you watched Looney Tunes, uh, but I really dug Looney Tunes when I was little. Bugs Bunny rules. There was this cartoon with the sheepdog, and the sheepdog and the wolf would come to work at the same time. And they'd even punch in the same clock. Hey, Jim. Hey, Bill. And then they would go their separate ways. And the sheepdog would get up on top of the hill, and he, you, could, you thought he couldn't see because his hair was all down in his eyes. And the wolf's out there sneaking up, and he's going to try and get the sheep. And every single time he gets the sheep or he's about to get the sheep, here's the sheep dog, pow, punches him in the face, throws him off a cliff or something. He protects his sheep because there's an enemy. And so look at John chapter 10, verse 10, what Jesus says, the thief or the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. So grab a hold of this. Jesus has shared with you his vision for your life, that you might have life to the fullest, that you would have abundant life in him. But he's also shared with you the enemy's vision for your life. And I want to give it to you in four simple words. And I hope that you will believe and recognize this, the enemy's vision for your life distract you from Jesus. That's it. And you might say, no, wait up, uh, Brian, you kind of misread things because Jesus, and I would listen to him, said that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's exactly right. And that's why it is so mind-blowing and ludicrous that the easiest, simplest way he goes about doing that is just to distract us from Jesus. We talk about this. He doesn't show up at the door with a name tag on that says Satan and said, hey, I'm here to take you to hell. And, and we go, no, I, I, I see, I know who you are. Mm-mm, not letting you in. That's not how he operates. All he wants to do is just distract us from Jesus ever so slightly. Why does he want to do that? Well, because Jesus has a vision for your life. And it is, I have come that you might have life the way you were intended to live it. I I am not just like a link in the chain or a piece of the puzzle. Jesus is saying, I am the chain. I am the puzzle. I'm not just a key to get in the door. I am the door. 
Remember John 14, 6, just after John 10 here, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I'm not just the key, I'm the door itself. Why is it so important that you and I recognize this? Well, because there are some people, and these people would probably consider themselves to be Christians. There are some people that believe what Jesus said in John 14, that he is the way, he is the door. But they also have been deceived into believing that they somehow still have to figure out a way to get in the door. In other words, oh yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus is the door, but I'm the key. And you see where that, le- that, that belief leads you is to legalism and pride. And then there's another view that I believe a lot of people fall into, that they believe, oh, Jesus, he's the key. And, and I got two hands here because if Jesus is the key, it would be a big key, right? So Jesus is the key and I got it, but there's got to be multiple doors out there, right? Because that would only be fair. And so, yeah, Jesus is the key, but I get to figure out the way. And you see where that believing leads you is to universalism and tolerance. Why do we care? Well, because legalism and pride and universalism and tolerance are toxic. They are poison to belief in who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Let me explain why. Pride does not want to hear that I can do absolutely nothing to contribute to my salvation. Pride and legalism does not want to hear that as a sinner, that there is absolutely nothing I can do to add to what Jesus Christ has done. Pride rejects Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. Pride rejects that for by grace, you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Pride says, no, thanks. Surely, I got to have something to do with this. Tolerance, and I promised myself I will not go off on a tangent here. Tolerance does not mean what it did 50 years ago. It used to mean that you tolerated someone. Tolerance now is the most idiotic idea ever proposed to mankind. Why is that? Because tolerance won't tolerate. It tolerates what it wants to. But tolerance, universalism, will not even begin to tolerate the premise that there is only one exclusive way to God. And so tolerance rejects John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And please understand, when you reject John 14, 6, you reject Jesus. Pride and legalism, tolerance and universalism. They are offended by the cross. The world is offended by the cross. And so 
do some deducing here with me. Those who love the cross are offensive to the world. And let's be honest, you and I, there's something within us. It's our flesh. We don't want to be offensive. Now, some of us, some of us go through the day like maybe we do. But see, this is an offense that we have no control over. This is when a transformed life begins to offend because of what it believes and what it's seen and witnessed and experienced. But the offense of the cross, I believe, is rooted most deeply in something that every single one of us, we came into this world with, and it is a distorted view of love. The offense of the cross is rooted in this distorted view of love because what the world believes is that to love is if I'm to love you, then I'm to make much of you. I'm supposed to build you up. I'm supposed to build up your self-esteem. I'm supposed to make you feel good about you, whatever it is that you think and feel and want to be. I need to puff that up in you. I want you to read with me what John Piper says about this idea in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. And I would encourage you to read this little bitty book if you ever have the opportunity. Piper says, we are taught that love is giving someone a mirror and helping him like what he sees. Basically, the world thinks that love is Stuart Smalley. If you remember Stuart, who looked at himself in the mirror and said, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But this is not what the Bible means by the love of God. Love is doing what is best for someone. But making self the object of our highest affections is not best for us. It is, in fact, a lethal distraction. What did we say a moment ago the enemy's vision for our life is? It's to distract us from Jesus Christ. And you know, the easiest way that he goes about doing that is by turning our focus inward. When the world begins to revolve around me. I was reminded this week that self-pity, you know where that's from? You know where self-pity is from? Hell. Because it says, I've been violated and, and what I'm entitled to, I've been wronged. That's what Satan tries to do is turn us inward because it becomes a lethal distraction. Going on, Piper says, we were made to see and savor God and savoring him to be supremely satisfied and thus spread in all the world the worth of his presence. Not to show people the all-satisfying God is not to love them. To make them feel good about themselves when they were made to feel good about seeing God is like taking someone to the Alps and locking them in a room full of mirrors. Friends, Jesus Christ has a vision for your life, but you need to understand something. That vision begins at the cross. And in case you and I have forgotten it this morning, the cross is a place of death. The cross is a place of death. We only love the cross if we are first repulsed by our own sin. 
We only wind up there when we realize that without that cross, we have no hope. You see, I don't care about a savior until I realize I need one. I don't care about a savior until I reckon with the fact that I am a sinner. And I'm not just a sinner like I am hanging off a cliff in need of a helper. I am a sinner dead in my sin who needs to be brought to life. I actually, uh, yes, I need a helper, but what I need more than that is a resurrector. I need someone to bring me from death to life. When someone begins to understand the cross, one of two things happens. It either becomes the sweetest thing that we have ever known, or it becomes the most bitter thing that we've ever experienced. And Paul, again, he has spent this entire letter saying, the cross is enough. The cross is enough. Rest in the cross. Speaking of that cross, Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 14. Paul says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember in Ephesians, Paul said, we don't have anything to boast about when it comes to our salvation. It's all Jesus. Well, here Paul is saying, I will tell you the one thing that I will boast about, the one thing that I will revel in. It is the cross of Jesus Christ because on that cross, that's where my life began. On that cross, my sin, my shame, my guilt, they were all crucified. On that cross, Jesus Christ became my treasure. The world, it no longer has any claim on me. It's been crucified to me and I to the world. It doesn't have any hook in me anymore. Remember Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Paul's not saying through this letter, I don't care about the world anymore. Of course he cares about the world because the world, you know who lives in the world? The people who are still lost and have no hope. And that's who Paul and we are called to. So to say, I don't care about the world anymore. That's not where Paul's going. Paul is also not saying I need to separate myself from the world and build a big wall. Uh, Build a big wall, you know, and protect myself from those people and just lock myself in. Because what Paul would be saying, if I need to separate myself from the world, that it still has some kind of hook in me. No, what Paul is saying is through Jesus Christ, I see the world so differently now. I see things so differently now. Tim Keller, talking about this verse, he says, what Paul means is that the Christian is now free to enjoy the world because he no longer needs to fear it nor to worship it. You see, when Jesus is our treasure, we begin to have a totally different perspective over everything else. We actually begin to embrace the vision that he has for our lives. Well, how does this happen? Look at verse 15. 
Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Let me give you that in the Brian Mayfield version. This will be the beginning of the Brian Mayfield study Bible. Paul is saying, look, I don't care. It doesn't matter if you are circumcised or you're not. If you're a man or a woman, if you're black or you're white, you're a Jew, a Gentile, you're from Italy or you're from India. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done, where you've been, where you haven't been. What matters is that you have been transformed into a new creation. That's what matters. Look with me at Romans chapter six, verse four. Last week when we baptized, every time we baptize, we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because that's the way Jesus said to do it. But you may notice that when people come out of the water, we say something. Well, what we do is we quote Romans 6, 4. Look at it with me. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? Newness of life. Paul is saying what matters is a new creation. Paul doesn't care about walking in the appearance of having everything together. What Paul cares about is walking in newness of life, that things have actually been and are actually being transformed from the inside out. And he goes on in verse 16 and he says this, for all who live by this rule, for all who choose to live this way, for all who choose to embrace and view life this way, look what he says, the peace and mercy of God belong to you. They belong to you. For those who choose to walk in newness of life, the peace and mercy of God belong to you. So put some of this together with me. You see, when you and I choose to continue living for other people's approval, when you and I choose to continue living to keep up appearances, what's happening is we are forfeiting the peace of God. We're actually doing several things. We're worshiping something futile, right? Because what we're worshiping is one of two things, either ourselves or other people. Worthless. Or we're grasping at something that's just unattainable. Because I think you know this as I do, whether I'm trying to work and slave and earn these 10, these 50 people's approval, and I finally get everything just such a way that I've got these 50 people's approval, you know what happens? The very thing I did to get their approval caused me to lose their approval. It's unattainable. It's futile. But here, most tragically understand that it is forfeiting something irreplaceable. The peace and mercy of God. Does that sound like Jesus's vision for your life? Does that sound like abundant life? I don't think so. We don't need the applause of men. The apostle Paul, he said, it's garbage when you compare it to knowing Christ. 
We don't need to fear man. It's unwarranted. Because the son of the most high God is our redeemer, our rescuer, our savior, our shield, our fortress. We got that going for us. But we most certainly do not despise the cross of Jesus Christ because on that cross is where life begins. On that cross is where my sin and my shame, every bit of which, they're all me. And on that cross, Christ said, no, Brian, now they're on me. So I glory in that cross. Let's close this letter out. Look at verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul's invitation to the Galatians is still extended to you and to me today. Come to the cross. Come to the cross. Glory in the life-changing news that Jesus bore our guilt and our sin and our shame. But understand that when you come to that cross, it is a place of death. And that when we come to the cross, we have to place ourselves on it. We have to surrender our lives to the one who took it for our sakes so that he might live through us. And that surrender is a daily surrender. But know that he came so that you and I could have abundant life, so that you and I could live the life we were intended to live. Understand that he came so that you and I, who were orphaned in our sin, could be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. He came so that you and I could walk in newness of life, in victory over sin. That's abundant life. Jesus has a vision for your life, my friends. For you to walk in newness of life and new creation. I want to say to you this morning, it'd be loads of fun and I'd love someday to show you Gold Hill. To take you up there and just go, look, there's Utah. I've never been to Utah, but I've seen Utah. Isn't that crazy? Y'all aren't excited about this like I am. You can tell I don't get out of the house much. But you know what? That view and that vision is garbage compared to the one that Jesus Christ has for your life. But you have to understand That vision is only found, it is only caught, it is only stirred and owned through the power of the Holy Spirit working through the truth of the word of God in your heart. The vision is there. Are you owning it? Are you waking up every day and maybe you're saying, Lord, man, today I feel like toast. But I want to walk in you. Show me how to live. 
Show me how to walk. Show me how to think. Show me how to speak for your glory. My prayer is that each one of us, that we would see Jesus as Paul does. But I also pray that you would see yourself as Jesus sees you, as dearly loved, as bought with a price, his life. I want to ask you to bow your head. And we are going to sing a song of worship and surrender here this morning. But I would like to pray Ephesians chapter 1 over over us as we as we worship. I want to take Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus and pray it over us. Father, I come to you this morning and I thank you for these people. Lord, I love these people. But I know that my love for them is garbage compared to your love. Lord, we come to you this morning Lord, we are praying that you would give us a spirit of wisdom. Lord, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of who you are. Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you have called us. Lord, that we would know and we would embrace the riches of of this glorious inheritance that we have as the saints. Lord, that we would know and embrace the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might within us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see who you are but that we might also see that we are so dearly loved. Father, we just proclaim this morning and affirm that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more than we, you already do. There's nothing that we have ever done that will make you love us less. Lord, we proclaim this morning that the desires of our heart are to fully believe that your approval and your presence are all that we need for everlasting joy. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have not surrendered your life to him, I want to encourage you. Some of our 
leaders, our pastors, our elders are going to be in the back at the tables. If you would like to talk with them, pray with them, they would love to share with you what it means to put your faith in Christ. Don't leave here today with that unresolved. Lord Jesus, we in these moments worship you and praise you. We give you glory and honor. Let's stand together and worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.